following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We're going to pick off where we left last week, and I want to invite you to stand. If you're able, as I read God's Word, I want to remind you that this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient, and it is God's word. I'm going to read Romans 16, verses 1 through 16 today. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencra, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray you'd have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory and our good. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had someone go out of their way for you in such a way that it just made you special, felt special and important and honored? I mean, maybe they greeted you and honored you in some way and thanked you in some way. Well, today in Romans 16, 1 through 16, Paul goes out of his way to honor and commend gospel partners. And he says good things about those he cares about. He says good things. It's a long list of greetings, the longest list of greetings in the New Testament. 25 people, five groups, and some of them you've heard of, some you never hear another thing about them except their name or that they were someone's mom or sister or brother or friend. But they were being recognized, and Paul is recognizing people for their service to Jesus and their help to the churches. And so this is a very encouraging passage of Scripture that teaches us that when everyone fulfills their God-ordained roles, the church is a beautiful thing. 
when everyone is fulfilling their God-ordained roles, the church is a beautiful thing. Now, chapter 15 ended, and we saw this last week, with plans and prayer and power and peace. Our plans are under God's providential orchestration and that they're subject to his editing. That our prayers are a declaration of our dependence upon God and we want to live in his power. We want to experience his peace. In fact, the chapter ended with a prayer that the God of peace would be with those Christians. And there's this amen at the end, this we're in agreement with God. It's, it's joyful. But Romans is far from over. You know, it's not like, hey, you know, chapter 15 is over. Chapter 16 is just icing on the cake. There are some really important things in chapter 16. And the first part, the part we're looking at today, Paul is observing two customs in that day when you're writing someone a letter. The first is that you would commend the letter carrier. The second is that you would compliment the recipient. And this is what he is doing. And he is really illustrating gospel partnership and family love in the body of Christ. It's, it's what marks healthy churches, gospel partnership and family love, where you have harmonious ministry instead of the disunity that sin fosters. And so Romans 16 is very significant because it shows men and women serving alongside one another to further the gospel. And it's a beautiful fulfilling of God's design. And so I hope that you are very encouraged by this passage of scripture as I have been this week, as I have been studying it. And it really shows us uh, Christians' relationship to Christ and the church. Very encouraging passage. And I want you to know, and I've said this before as we've gone through certain passages in Romans, but especially as we've got along to near the end, this passage is anchored in all the exposition, all the explanations from chapter 1 through chapter 11. And it's also anchored in the exhortations that have gone on from chapters 12 to 15. Those very practical exhortations for the body of Christ. And so what we're going to do this today in this sermon is really do two things. Okay? First, we're going to just go through the passage verse by verse, uh, do the exposition, do the explanation of the text, and then I'm going to make some observations and really bring out some implications for the church, for the body of Christ. And so when we get first to this exposition aspect, there are two parts in this passage, and they're unequally weighted in terms of how many verses are budgeted you know, for each section. The first part has two verses. The first part, verses one and two, is Paul commending a gospel partner. So that's the first part of the outline, okay? The second part is verses three to 16, and it's God complimenting ministry partners, gospel partners. So he's complimenting men and women alike, all playing vital and essential roles in the ministry of the church and in the functioning of the body of Christ. What he is doing here is he's, he's promoting mutual, unified family love. And it's, it's been going on, really, since chapter 12. I mean, here's kind of how Romans has gone. The first 11 chapters, he's saying, Jesus loves you, Christians. Jesus loves you. And then he's saying from chapters 12 to 15, you need to love one another because Jesus loves you. And then you get to these first 16 verses in chapter 16, and he's saying, and guess what? I love you. So Jesus loves you, you need to love one another, and I love you so much. And, he, and you see this, you see his heart, 
the passion of his heart coming out as he's giving these greetings. I really love how God just elevates people. And, you know, God in the gospel brings about this socially diverse group of people, urges them to have mutual affection and honor for one another. The gospel blends people. The gospel brings people from every nation and tongue and tribe. And in the gospel, in the church, you're not valued by, by you know, what power you have out in the world. You are valued because you are part of the family of God. Equal footing. You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so Paul is honoring everyone he mentions. This is sweet. Uh, there's no corrections here. It's all commendation. It's all honor. And, and he honors them all. He knew some of them. Some of them he just knew by reputation. You know, when you know of someone, you're like, well, that's a, a great person I want to get to be friends with because I know they're good friends, and if, if you're friends with them, you're my family too, right? And he's bringing out names that are common among slaves and freedmen, well, immigrants and men and women. In fact, some of the most highly commended are women in this passage. In fact, first and foremost is Phoebe. So as we look at these first two verses, you'll notice that Phoebe is the gospel partner being commended. So verses one and two, commending a gospel partner. And what he's doing to the church is he's saying, I'm urging you, church, you practice the humility and the harmony and the hospitality with one another that you have been seeing since chapter 12. 12, 13, 14, and 15. Now I want you to practice it. I want you to put this into practice. So look at verse one. It starts, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Now, it was common in those days when you're writing a letter that you would commend or introduce someone, and it's very well known in the ancient world that this is how a letter would start. And so Phoebe is this very special woman, most likely the carrier of the letter to Rome. So this is a very you know, important task, and it would have been a dangerous task as well. But you'll notice she's not just a sister in Christ, she's called a servant of the church at Sencrea. So a servant of the church. So Paul is affectionately uh, commending her as a representative of a church that's located in a very busy cosmopolitan area just east of Corinth. And he calls her a servant. That's the Greek word diakonos, where we get our word deacon. Now it's unclear from this passage or really anywhere else in scripture, whether she held an official office in the church or whether it was informal in terms of her service. Either way, she is serving very significantly in the church at Sencria. Now, in the Roman world, uh, when, you, when you use this term uh, deacon, especially in Romans, in the book of Romans, you've got Christ being uh, spoken of as the servant, the akonos, of the circumcision, You've got the government being spoken of as the agent of God or the servant, the aconus of God for good. But what it's describing is someone who served and got things done. Phoebe got things done in the church. Phoebe was a, a beautiful servant in the church. And it's described as the kind of person that works alongside uh, the overseers and elders as assistants in the churches. Now, if she's a deacon... Uh, the role would have involved a lot of, a lot of uh, practical serving uh, to the Christians in her town. A lot of serving because a deacon is an assistant and helper of the elders. 
Now, I think there's uh, plenty of good reasons where we should say that Phoebe was a woman deacon. First Timothy, first reason is 1 Timothy 3.11, which probably identifies women deacons, just like we have deaconesses here at Grace. Um, some think that means deacons' wives. We think it means women deacons, and I think there's good reasons for that. Uh, the phrase, too, deacon of the church at Sencre, uh, suggests she served in a very special capacity. This is the only place where diakonos is tied to a particular church in the New Testament. And so, uh, most likely, she's a deaconess, deacon in the church, and as her position is described by Paul in these first two verses, it seems to indicate that she would hold an official position in the church. Now, what would women deacons do in the early church? They would give assistance to primarily other women in the church, uh, visitation, baptism, other important matters. Um, and he says to the church, he says, here's what you do. Verse 2, you welcome her. You, you bring her in. When she shows up, you receive her. You receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of Christians. And you help her. Literally, literally that means stand beside her and uphold her in whatever she might need. Because she has been a patron, literally a helper of many. And then Paul says, and of me. She's helped me. So you welcome her in a way befitting believers and you assist her and help her any way you can. She's been a patron. That's a significant word in the New Testament. It's a legal representative or it's a wealthy person. Uh, most likely, Phoebe was a very wealthy person who gave personal help, not just monetary, but hospitality and other things who helped not just Paul, but many others in the church. So she was significant in the church. But here's what we know for sure. No doubt Phoebe was a critically important part of the church. She, she played a, a very important role. So Paul says, you help her in any way because she's helped others. Now there is some good reciprocity. He's basically saying, she's helped a lot of people, you help her. You help her. So he's commending a gospel partner first and foremost, verses 1 and 2. Now we're going to move on to verses 3 through 16, where now he's complimenting gospel partners. And he just has this long list of people. Now the first off the bat, you might have heard before, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Here it says Prisca and Aquila. So he's using the formal um, way of saying that, that name Priscilla, it's Prisca. The, the informal way is, is what Luke used when, in Acts when he says Priscilla. But Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So they worked with Paul in ministry. Now, Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, appear six times in the New Testament, always as a, a couple, a married couple, husband and wife, serving together. So by the way, if you're a Christian and you get to serve with your, your, your spouse, it's a, a really beautiful thing to be able to do that and to be able to help other Christians, whether it's in a formal or informal way. And so Paul says, these two, verse four, they risk their necks for me. That literally means they put their neck under the ax of the executioner. Like they almost died for me, for my life, he says. And so he says, look, I'm giving thanks for them and to them to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. So all the churches that Paul is associated with are saying, thank you, Lord, for Priscilla and Aquila. Thank you, Lord, for them. They have, we're giving thanks. 
Now, Priscilla and Aquila had four things in common with Paul. They figured this out, obviously, when they first met. First thing is, they were all, they were, they were all Jews. So they're, fellow, they're kinsmen, right? But secondly, they had the same trade skills. They're, they're tent makers. They probably made those linen awnings that were used to protect open areas in homes and market stalls and uh, streets in, in public places from the, from the hot Mediterranean sun. Third, they had all, when they first met, they had recently all arrived um, into Corinth. So Paul was fresh off a journey from the eastern Macedonia and northern Achaia, uh, starting churches. You know why um, Pris- Priscilla and Aquila came to, to Corinth? Because they were exiled from Italy. Claudia had basically expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And so Acts 18, we see that. But the fourth thing, probably the most important, is they're all Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. So verse 5 says, greet the church in their house too. I love this about Priscilla and Aquila. It seems that their pattern was, wherever they went, they had a home church, a little house church. They got groups of believers together. So if you're that type, you're like Priscilla and Aquila, you're like, Wherever we are, wherever we live, we're always going to have people in our home. We're going to get in the word and pray together, do outreach together. That's Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, in, in Ephesus, they had a church in their home too. So it seems like that would be their pattern. Early Christian assemblies often met in homes. So he says some good things about them. Then he goes on and says, greet my beloved Epinatus, uh, the first convert to Christ in Asia. Literally, the first fruit. The first fruit. It, it's the, the first one to become a believer. Christ is the, is the one to whom the first fruits are offered. And, and he says, this is the first person to come to Christ in that location. Moves on to verse 6. Greet Mary. She's worked hard for you. Now, this gets repeated several times. Very important phrase, worked hard. It means she grew weary. She expended strength. She spent energy serving the church. If you do that, if you spend your energy and work hard serving the church... You're to be commended. You're to be thanked. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So we learned four things about these two. First, kinsmen, literally compatriots, fellow Jews. Second, fellow prisoners. Very uh, important here. They went to prison for their faith in Christ. Third, well-known to the apostles. This is a tricky phrase. It might mean prominent among the apostles. It literally is splendid or outstanding. Uh, The phrase could have had several meanings here. Obviously, it doesn't refer to the office of apostle, like, say, capital A, apostle. It would be a lowercase apostle. But the term simply, apostle, simply means sent ones. It refers to any believer that's sent out in ministry for the gospel. So this is not the position of apostle. That, that was held by 12 slash 13 men. But the, uh, this is a common usage in the Greek of this term in the early church. People sent out for gospel purposes. It would be a larger group that would be called apostles. Again, lowercase a, apostles. Did not have the same level of authority as Paul or Barnabas or James. Uh, not a technical term. But it would be used for itinerant evangelists and missionaries that would go out and preach the gospel. The fourth thing we learn about them is they're in Christ before Paul. They got saved before Paul. And so possibly they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Possibly they were eye and ear witnesses to Jesus' ministry. That's a possibility. 
It's like, whoa, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? Now, the interesting thing about this verse is Junia's identity is debated, and it's debated very strongly, actually. Um, but here's what we know about Junia, okay? Or Junius is another way to say that, that term. Uh, this person was a first-century Christian that was highly regarded and complimented by Paul. Uh, Well-known, respected by the Apostle Paul, and this person had become a Christian before Paul. Now, anything beyond that kind of puts you out on a limb, okay? Uh, anything else is conjecture. Here's what we don't know. We don't know if Junia was a man or a woman. People debate this like all the time, and it's like there's just no big solid proof here. Uh, the first 12 centuries of the church, they assumed Junia was a woman. Uh, Junius is the male version of the name, but it's just not abundantly clear. But I would say, most likely, Junia is a wo- was a woman. And the question then comes in, what position did she hold in the church? If she's a woman, what position did she hold in the church? Well, if you think about this, uh, Andronicus and Junia, if Junia is a woman, probably Andronicus and Junia might have been husband and wife and served as missionaries together as a husband and wife team, similar to Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca and Aquila. What would female missionaries do in those days? They would work primarily with women in the Greco-Roman world that was a patriarchal society. So it's likely that Andronicus and Junia performed outstanding service while working among and possibly under some of the ordained apostles, kind of capital A apostles. But here's an interesting thing. They're not mentioned in Scripture again. This is the only place in Scripture they're mentioned, and it's all it says about them right there. But the name Junia has become a point for some on which entire doctrines have been built uh, with no grounding in Scripture. Uh, No biblical proof, but many will insist that Junia was a woman holding the highest position of authority in the church as an authoritative teacher and preacher and pastor and elder. What I want to make clear here is this passage says nothing about women's roles in the church. It just lifts up women very highly, and it lifts up men very highly, and says these are people that need to be commended in the church. Here's what it does give us. It gives us the fact that women are a vital part of the ministry of Christ's church. But what people have done is they have pushed that, uh, some ideas into this text. So it calls for some explaining some things that aren't even here. And I'm realizing this is a very sensitive topic nowadays. Uh, The goal here is not telling everyone what to do. The goal is we want to be faithful as God has designed his church to work. Uh, More than any other place, the church should be the place we talk about what the Bible says about certain things. And uh, I always, I welcome you. Please talk with me about this. I would love to look in the Bible with you about what this says and, and what the Bible says about these topics. But here's what you can't conclude from this reference to Junia and the other women co-workers. You cannot conclude that women were exercising authority over men contrary to 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That was the apostolic pattern. So what you can know for sure is women were not preaching in churches. Uh, They weren't being elders. They weren't doing anything like that. And you have to take the whole teaching of Scripture. Take the Old Testament. There were no female priests or prophets. Uh, No woman wrote a book of the Bible. But God used so many women in very, very significant ways. I mean, I'm going to be preaching Ruth coming up. Naomi and Ruth. Or what about Deborah? What about Esther and so many other women? You go into the New Testament. You've got people like Anna 
and the daughters of Philip that are in a moment in time doing something very significant in ministry in the church. But no, no women wrote uh, books in the New Testament. Um, the, the Anna and the daughters of Philip were not in church gatherings preaching and teaching. So the exceptions proved the rule. There was no woman in the, in the, in the New Testament of, of apostle or pastor or prophet or elder. Um, no sermon preached by a woman in the Bible. And we're talking here about God's order. We're not talking about sexism. We're talking about what, what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I'm giving you these instructions so you'll know how people should operate in the church. So Paul highly recognized women in the office of deacon. He had no objection at all to a husband and wife mentoring a young leader like Apollos. But he nowhere endorses women pastors, preachers, elders, or overseers. But here's where it gets sticky. According to a 2017 poll, 80% of Americans, 62% of professing Christians, 40% of evangelicals are okay with a women pastor. 27% of pastors today are women. But I want to say this to you today. The Bible isn't up for grabs. It's not open to debate. Uh, it doesn't change with the times. It doesn't change according to percentages and polls. But what we have seen, and we've seen it in this day that we live, uh, the evangelical world has largely embraced the world and has rebelled against the Bible, a la Genesis 3. Uh, men and women both desiring to rule. Um, sin infects us. Think about your marriage. Think about your relationships with other people. You know that sin infects uh, relationships, and sometimes there's constant conflict. Sometimes there's a desire to control, and we know this is true. Over-controlling men ruin marriages. Uh, wives who desire to dominate their husbands ruin marriages, and that filters into the church. It should break our hearts. It should humble us. I've been comforted by a quote of Martin Luther recently, and here's what he said. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. And he went on to say, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. In February 2018, Paul Carter wrote an article um, and name-checked three women that are in this passage of Scripture. The article was called, Phoebe, Prisca, and Junia, Three Women in the Eye of the Evangelical Storm. And he said that recently, the they become a subject of a great deal of conversation and controversy in the church. And then he went on to say this text in, in Romans 16 says nothing about a woman preaching in a worship service. Says nothing about a woman functioning as a pastor, elder of a local church. Says nothing to contradict or obscure the, the clear teaching of the Bible. And I think this should be a sober reminder to us. A sober reminder to handle the word of God accurately. And not to press meanings into the text or import heavy agendas into the text. Our, our mind must bow to the mind of God. I've got, a, uh, I think, a pretty practical illustration for you. Let's be as careful with Scripture as we are with our cell phones. Now, we are very careful to take care of our cell phones 
And we want to watch them all the time and make sure we don't miss anything. Let's be as careful with Scripture and make sure we don't miss something. Because next week we're going to get into verse 17 where Paul is warning against those who divide believers in the church, teaching contrary to what the Bible teaches. Now the remainder is a bunch of general greetings. Jam-packed with a lot of of great words about both men and women. Verse 8, he says, um, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. I love this person, right? They're beloved. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker, and my beloved Stachys. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who's approved. You know what that means? That person went through trial and persecution and testing for their faith in Christ. And then greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. He's, now he's greeting a group. Greet their whole family. Verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. So in Narcissus' family, who's ever a Christian, greet them. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard, there you have it again, grew weary, spent energy in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen, elect, literally, that's the word, in the Lord. Also his mother, I love this part. Say hello to Rufus's mom. We don't even know her name. But he says, she's been a mother to me as well. That's the body of Christ. Right there, that, there's family love in the body of Christ. Here we live in a world of fractured families where, where many people get saved and then they see in the church the first family where they see the love that they have longed for, where they encounter family love and, and, they're, and they're not, they realize they're not passive passengers you know, just going along for the ride, but they're active participants Serving alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, tethered together. We're not free solo climbers here. We're tethered together in Christ. He goes on in verse 14. Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, brothers who are with him. Just another group. In verse 15, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister. His sister's not named. It's just, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So there's another group. And then he says in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Be careful. Kiss the right people for the right reasons and the right timing. Be appropriate with that. I sometimes wonder, you know, did he realize all the germs? I sometimes wonder how many, how many germs get passed from a baby's cheek. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. He wants this diverse group of people who have, who have come from a lot of social boundaries. And he said, lose your boundaries, people. Lose your social boundaries that foster pride and foster division. Treat each other lovingly and embrace each other as part of the same family. Jews embrace Gentiles. Gentiles embrace Jews and vice versa. All just do this. And, and that really speaks to us, doesn't it? We got to get over our people issues. Just get over your people issues and embrace your family in Christ appropriately. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says then, all the churches of Christ greet you. All the churches. Now he's not mentioning everyone. He's he's not naming everyone. And I'm guessing no one got upset and wrote a letter and said, you didn't say my mother's name. 
I don't think Rufus got mad and said, you didn't remember my mother's name? Because here's the thing. When everybody in the body of Christ fulfills their God-ordained roles, the church is a beautiful thing. It's just beautiful. Now, we've got to make some observations and pull out some implications here for us as a local church in a specific location. I'll bring out three things, three things that are based upon what this passage is saying. It's all about being in Christ, by the way. Okay, this is for Christians, just like we're going to take the Lord's table in a few moments. This is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, I want you to be. You need to to know something about Jesus, that, that Jesus God the Son came to earth for the purpose of dying for our sins. And he died in our place on the cross. And and he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death. And he ascended to the Father. And he promised to return. And, And the Bible says clearly, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Like, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in what he did, not what you can do. Don't try to work your way to God anymore. Just yield to him and be at peace with God. And I hope that's you today. Because the rest of this really is all about for Christians. In Christ, here's the first thing I want to bring out. In Christ, we are chosen and loved. We are chosen and loved in Christ. You notice in verse 5, the first fruit in Asia, the first convert in Asia. Verse 7, in Christ before me. Verse 13, chosen, elect in the Lord, uh, the beloved. All believers are equally chosen. There's no hierarchy in God's sovereign choosing the election. Romans 9 made it clear. He chooses whomever he wills. All in Christ belong to him. They're secure in him forever. God's no respecter of persons. There's going to be men and women in heaven. There's going to be men and women in hell. No quota he was trying to fill. Just according to his decrees and his plan and his good pleasure. But all believers equally loved. We love him because he first loved us, right? So that he gives us a love for him, but also for one another. You think about it, everyone in Christ is a worshiper of God. Everyone in Christ is to show love and honor and respect for everyone else. You want a position in the church? Go stand outside the church and greet everyone who comes in and tell them, you're so glad they're here today. We need to be pursuing God like engaged in pursuing God, like like the psalmist said in Psalm 42, verse one, as the deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for you, O Lord. Like we want to know God. We want to love God. We know we're needy. We know we're broken. We know we're humbled at the cross, but we also know our identity is set. It's not changing. It's not moving around. We're chosen and loved in Christ. We have equal footing in Christ. Think about this passage. Paul is naming slaves and freedmen, Gentiles, the poor, the rich. He's greeting people with Greek names and Latin names. I mean, in those days, a slave bore witness to the fact that their cultural status was only as a living tool in the hands of their master. And they were valued only for what their master could get out of them. So here is the gospel coming in. And here's Jesus forming a family. And it runs across all the various barriers of society. And Paul's extending the family greeting, the family love, 
through the family of God. Phoebe is everyone's sister. Our sister Phoebe. Rufus' mom, Paul's mom. Everyone's brothers and sisters together. Paul elevates women. Do you notice? In that day, this was shocking. He praises women for their contribution to the advancement of the gospel alongside of men. This was a shocking trait of Christianity that brought great offense to the first century church. Here are the Romans who are observing these strict barriers and boundaries socially because they had to maintain you know, control and keep the powerful in power. If you went to the, to the theater in those days, if you were um, a non-citizen or a woman or a slave, you would, if you were permitted to, to attend, you were sat way, way far in the back, like the farthest seats at the Hollywood Bowl kind of thing, okay, or way in the nosebleed section at the, for, at the fabulous forum. You know, it was all according to social class. If you were invited to a dinner, various menus would be given out according to what social class you were a part of. Like you're not getting the pate if you're, you know, lower class. Who wants that anyway, right? The rich and the poor were mingling together. They were living in the same buildings. They were going to the same theaters. They were going to the same baths. But everyone had a place and they knew their place. And here you have Jesus put everybody at the same table. Does this make you weep with joy? He put everybody at the same table. Equal footing. Same level. That is beautiful. That is gracious. That is merciful. There's no Christian class system. We're, we're all equal under Christ. If you're a believer, you are chosen and loved in Christ. Your identity is fixed, it's firm, it's, it's final, it, it's not budging. You're loved, you're chosen, you're accepted, you're forgiven. You're highly favored in Christ. Your identity, doing gospel ministry work because it's God's work, and there's a joy in serving Christ, but that's why you need to know your identity. Who you are in Christ, believers, is cemented in Christ. It's fixed like an anchor, it's not going to move. It's in concrete. It's not going to budge. This is like if God put like crazy glue and super glue and gorilla glue and the kind of glue that takes, you know, two tubes to, to work, you know, the epoxy or whatever. And once it's set, there is no way it's coming apart. And the reason why for you in Christ is because the way, the truth, and the life has put you into the body of Christ. And your hope is fixed on the anchor of Christ. Your identity is set in him. You're secure. You're not moving. You're chosen and loved. Your identity is in Christ. Second thing I want to bring out is that we are gifted and should be growing in Christ. Now, I realize that some people stagnate in their growth. Some people just take off. But you notice in this passage where it says, so-and-so has worked hard in the Lord. They grew weary. They spent energy. Remember what Paul said? I, I worked harder than all of them, but yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We're saved by the grace of God. We live by the grace of God. We serve by the grace of God. And gospel ministry is hard work. There's a cost to serving Christ. You go tomorrow morning to your office and to your school and to your neighborhood and you want to speak of Christ to people, there is a cost for you doing so. 
There's a reason why you need to offer your gifts to God. Offer your whole self to God. You're gifted in Christ and you should be growing. But here's the point we need to know. Because of that, you need to know that all roles and responsibilities are not interchangeable. All roles and responsibilities are not interchangeable. We're gifted and to be growing. But men and women who are equal in essence and dignity and value by God's design are not interchangeable. Just one look at each other kind of tells you that. God created two complementary sexes for our good and his glory. Equal yet different. Equal worth, equal dignity, equal value, equal gifting. In his good created order, God has done this. Different yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the church and the home. This is part of God's plan for humanity. God's grace to men and women. For his glory, for our joy, for, for human flourishing. See, God intends for men and women and boys and girls to be equally involved and engaged in ministry in the local church, but we're not interchangeable. The Bible reserves the office of elder, pastor, overseer for qualified men. Elders lead the church, preach the word, protect the flock from false teaching, pray for the flock, visit the flock, visit the sick, equip for ministry. Elders practice sacrificial male servant leadership as they shepherd and oversee and lead and care for and pray for the flock. But apart from the role of pastor, elder, overseer, the Bible encourages and assumes that women will be deeply involved in the ministry of the church. You think of Titus 2 even. There's certain things that men can do that women can't do and women can do that men can't do. Older women teaching biblical wisdom to younger women. That's noble, that's beautiful, that's necessary. We must have a desire to build up all Christian women. Encourage our, our sisters in Christ as fellow ministers of the gospel. That we should affirm women in ministry in the local church. That you are all gifted by God to serve God's purposes in this generation according to God's intent to edify the body and to reach to the ends of the earth. You think about how many women are greeted in this passage. It was remarkable for that time. It is clear from this list, women were very actively involved in ministry. That these women were vitally involved in the ministry of the local church. Think of the word co-worker being used. Involvement in Christian ministry. Priscilla and Aquila and others. There's gospel glory in how God intends both male and female of all ages, to worship him and to serve him and to love one another and to reach the world. We, we should all aspire to serve within the range of gifting and roles and responsibility that God gives. Here's what happens. When you align with the word of God and what it teaches and what it says, you're never cheated or robbed of your dignity or your gifts or your value or your worth or your ministry. We are to lift up and encourage we are to teach what God by his grace designs and enables. But we want to operate in the sphere of biblical faithfulness. We should be rejoicing in this biblical picture of men and women serving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ together. Rejoice in biblical examples of men and women using their gifts in the church for the glory of God. I have the privilege of, of living with five women. Four daughters and, and a beautiful wife. Four beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife. They're my sisters in Christ. Christian women here, you're my sisters in Christ. 
You're my sisters. I'm your brother in Christ. And as my sisters in Christ, you are gifted, you are needed, you are necessary, you are valued, you are honored, you are highly esteemed, you are a child of God. He wants to use you in significant ways, you know, beyond that we could even ask or think in the body of Christ and to the ends of the earth. You're chosen and loved. You're gifted and growing. Now, one more. Because we're chosen and loved, because we're gifted and growing, we are also useful and needed in the body. You're to be known in a local church where you worship together and serve together and grow in Christ. So find a place to serve, all Christians. God gives every local church everything it needs to do everything he intends. So if you're a believer, you're needed in this church. Your gifts are needed. You're, you're, you are needed. We need you here serving the Lord in some kind of gospel ministry. Find a place to serve. Trust the Holy Spirit. Use the gifts God gives. There, gospel fellowship is practical fellowship. There are so many ways that you can show gospel partnership and family love in the body of Christ. We're together at the table, useful and needed. But here's what you have to remember. We are useful and needed in the body of Christ, but we are not indispensable. We are not indispensable. moment we start thinking we're indispensable, God may say, you know what? I don't really need you right now. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how can I best be a gospel partner who is faithful, who loves Jesus, who loves others, and seeks first God's kingdom? I mean, gospel work is hard work. There's a cost and toil of serving. But we need to remember and recognize those who are serving amongst us. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and, and see the, the result of their, their life imitate their faith. So we've got to find someone to compliment and commend, don't we? We've got to thank them for the gospel partnership. We've got to praise God and thank them for God's work in and through them. It's right to do. It's biblical to do. It's necessary to do. We need to do this as a church. We need to commend those who have served well among us. First on the list, I put Ed and Carla Trenner. They have been serving for years at this church, for many, many years, pouring their hearts out in service. I'm looking around this room, and I'm seeing Alan and Christy Check right here. And I'm looking in the back, and I'm seeing, I actually see the, Str the Shrocks are here. The Shrocks, they're from out of, the, out of state even. I'm seeing the Brancucci's back there. I'm seeing people. I got my glasses, but I can't see you all. <laughs> Dave and Kathy Strzeski. I mean, all these people that have served years and years and years at this church and continue to do so. And when the going got tough, they just didn't get going. They stayed and they worked and they, they prayed and they, they, they just poured their hearts out for this body of believers. Praise God. Wow. What does God do? I'm, all of you, all of you, I am, it, you could have been here for six months or two weeks. You might have been here for 50 years. Praise God. I'm very thankful for your gospel partnership. We are in the body of Christ together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So, there are so many more, right, that we could commend. Please do not feel left out if I missed your name, if I looked at you but didn't say your name, okay? I just would feel horrible about that. I don't like any, any I never like it when someone doesn't know somebody's name, right? I always want to know someone's name. I'll even say to you sometimes, you know, I know I've met you before, but can you give me your name again? Because maybe I'll remember it this time, right? This passage 
It reminds us what we know is true. About gospel partners in the church. Uh, most of the people named here, they weren't full-time paid Christian workers. It's just every believer has a full-time Christian ministry. If you're a believer, you're a full-time Christian worker. Your big aim in life should just be, how, what can I do for the gospel advancement in every sphere of life? Because when everybody fulfills their God-ordained role, the church is just an absolutely stunning, beautiful thing. Amen? Lord, thank you that you motivate zealous gospel partnership and, and for us to show family love to fellow Christians. Thank you, Lord, that you chose us and love us and you gift us and you grow us and you make us useful and, and needed and, and you put our identity very secure in Christ. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you have done and what you will do. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.